0: Okay, so they tell you to wait. that someday, everything's going to be worth it. That patience is a virtue. It's just around the corner. Don't throw everything away. But what if there's nothing there? Well, today on Snap Judgment, we want to see what everyone's working so hard for. My name is Ben Washington. Close the door. Set your phone to voicemail and tell your boss, you need a moment to prepare the big sale because you're listening, 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 listening to Snap Judgment Plus. Now then, speaking of bosses, you want to quit your job? <sighs> How about quit your job and get rich and have fantastic adventures? Well, it's probably not a good idea, Unless you're this next
1: guy.
2: Hello, my name is W.C. Jameson, and I'm a professional treasure hunter.
1: For about 40 years, W.C. Jameson has searched for and recovered buried treasure. Gold bars, silver ingots, ancient artifacts. And he's done it in secret.
2: I pretty much never let anybody uh, know about it. Uh, My children uh, didn't even know uh, what I was doing, in large part because uh, a lot of what we do is, is illegal.
1: He's a bit of a folk legend among treasure hunters. I met him at his home in East Texas. His lawn is decorated with found art, painted antlers, homemade windmills, something called a bottle tree, where he hangs blue bottles of Bombay sapphire, once he's done drinking the gin inside. On the wall of his study, he's hung a portrait of the great Texas poet Willie Nelson. Every Thursday, you can find him singing his own songs and playing guitar at the local bar. Now that he's getting older, he's begun to soften up a little about talking.
2: I don't care anymore. You don't care what? I don't care if I get caught.
1: What he does, and used to do a lot more of, is sneak into national parks sometimes onto private property, over national borders, searching for buried treasure. He used to work with three partners. Together they were a kind of swashbuckling adventure team.
2: We, interestingly, we all had military experience. Uh, We were all sharpshooters. We all had uh, black belts in martial arts. We're all university educated. Among the four of us, there were two PhDs and three master's degrees. Nobody agreed to have their own names used. Uh, A fellow I refer to as Slade was a uh, a six-year Marine. He spent four years in Vietnam, and a guy I referred to as as poet is from England. Uh, Stanley, uh, Dr. Stanley was a university professor. He was actually the brains behind the the quartet.
1: Dr. Stanley would travel to Mexico City and troll the archives for old maps of silver and gold mines operated by the Spanish colonial government.
2: We would use the directional, the geographic information that we found in these, to chase down these locations.
1: They'd pack up food and water and drive to abandoned ranches in Colorado, Mexico, New Mexico, and Arizona. And then they'd head out on foot in search of hidden mines.
2: A lot of times these searches, we would find what we were looking for during the first expedition. Some of these searches took one in particular. It was a a silver cache in the Sierra Madres. It took us seven years to find uh, 880 bars of silver, 18 pound silver ingots. Two or three of these locations where we found caches, we would return to. Time and again, and we would make, we, 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 we called them banks. That was a code word among ourselves. And we would, from time to time, uh, I and the company of my partners, from time to time, would travel to these banks and make withdrawals. I don't owe anybody any money at all. Everything I pay for is in cash. I sent three kids through college. I, I bought a ranch at one point.
1: He's found treasure covered in hundreds of rattlesnakes. He's been swept up in river rapids on his motorbike.
2: About a 100cc trail bike that I drove through the a, 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 a floodwaters of the Rio Grande one time.
1: He's camped alongside mountain lions and jaguars. A lot of his stories sound fantastical. Especially the story he's about to tell. Is this a true story? Yes. How true is it?
2: It is uh, It's 100% true. If anything, on a lot of these stories, I hold back stuff simply because um, I, I'm a little bit concerned that it. when I have in the past tried to explain what I do, I see a look of doubt in people's faces. And so I tend not to talk about this stuff all that much.
1: This story starts with a phone call from an elderly woman named Helen Pitcock.
2: That was uh, actually... Uh, One of the most bizarre experiences I've ever had, I think she had uh, learned about something I was doing through a a newspaper article or some some information that had escaped.
1: The woman said her husband was missing and she needed Jamieson's help finding him.
2: She told me the story of her husband leaving their home in Georgia. I believe they were from Toccoa, Georgia. And going into this mountain range in Arizona and him discovering a treasure, silver ingots and a silver mine. He returned back home in, in Georgia. He brought back a couple of silver ingots and told, informed his wife, he was gonna gather up some serious camping supplies and he was going back. He was He was obsessed with recovering his treasure. He quit his job, I'm sure much to uh, Mrs. Pitcock's dismay, packed their vehicle and headed back out to the mountains. A
1: year passed and Herman didn't come home. Then another year passed. Helen heard nothing from her husband. She hadn't heard from him in seven years by the time she called Jameson. She asked him to look for his remains.
2: She mailed us a copy of that map. We made an arrangement that if we found him or found any of this alleged treasure, that she would get a, certainly get a, a, a split of it. We had plans to go out to this area anyway to search for this silver cache that we had uh, somehow heard about. It was like, you know, a message from above or something that we might ought to just go ahead and do this.
1: Would you say that your intentions were, were altruistic or opportunistic?
2: I would have to say, uh, probably lean more toward opportunistic. Uh, we were attracted by the notion of the, uh, the lost treasure.
1: So Jameson and his team packed backpacks full of beans and chilies and oatmeal. They drove to the Dos Cabezas Wilderness in southern Arizona, about 100 miles from the Mexican border.
2: This is ranching country. It's, it's desert country. It's, it's ranching country. It's actually a very poor ranching country. I think the nearest town would have been about 20 or 30 miles away. A good day's walk, surely. Uh, We all went as bird watchers. We got into the canyon that that was indicated on the map, and we uh, set up camp, cooked our our meal, our backpack stuff, and basically sitting around the campfire doing whatever we usually did. And the sun went down. And we're transitioning to uh, going to bed because we wanted to get an early start in the morning. And it was at that point where I kept hearing somebody walking around out there. The next morning, uh, set out on up the canyon, but we found footprints. So somebody was up there. Could have been a rancher. Could have been Could have been anybody. Um, we didn't know. But we were mostly young. We were mostly full of ourselves. And we had guns. So, you know, guy stuff.
1: Using the map, they found a clue that they were on the right trail. They found a talus pile. Talus is the rock that's dug out of the mine and dumped at the opening of the shaft.
2: You see this. This uh, flow of rocks on a slope, you're sliding and um, you're gradually making your way up to the top. We got fired upon. A shot rang out. We head for cover. The shot came from across the canyon. And we were in an open area, and so the first thing we needed to do was get the hell off the, uh, the slope. We went back to the campsite, spent the night at the camp that night.
1: And what's that night like?
2: We'd been shot at, and so we, we actually posted guard. We, uh, we took turns standing guard. By the way, we heard footsteps again that night in, in camp.
1: Why not turn around and go back home and say we tried to find this and we got shot at and we left? Surely that—that's an acceptable defeat.
2: That's giving up? We were—we were we, we were on a, we were on an expedition. We were on an expedition to try to find what we were searching for. Leaving—leaving leaving the scene and going back to—going uh, back home would have been giving up.
1: So, what were your plans for the next day? I mean, how did you figure out what to do
2: next? We didn't. We kind of made it up on the fly. got up the next morning, we had breakfast, and we headed back up.
1: As they started carefully up the talus pile, Stanley, the oldest and most cautious, went first.
2: He stepped out, he spread his arms wide, and turned around to show whoever might be watching that he was unarmed, and he, he yelled out as loud as he could if the person that we couldn't see had a claim on this mine and wanted us out, just let us know and we'll be glad to go. Nothing nothing happened. Stanley looked at us. We're looking around. We're looking for a target. I'm carrying my weapon. Slade has a rifle and a pistol. There was no response whatsoever. And he proceeded up the, uh, the talus. We were in a we'll see mode. We'll see. Stanley made it with some difficulty, made it to the top of the talus pile where we could see the opening of the, the shaft. If He got up to the shaft. He looked uh, down at us, uh, did kind of a full circle as he looked around the canyon, and then all of a sudden a shot rang out, and Stanley dropped the way he dropped, it looked like he had been hit bad. We jumped across the uh, entrance, didn't give the uh, uh, the person inside a chance to uh, to take aim and fire at anything. Tended to Stanley, uh, and as it turns out, he wasn't hit with a bullet. He was hit with uh, a shards of rock. He was bleeding heavily from a, a lot of cuts. There was a lot of blood. On a hunch, I called into the mine and I, I said, Pitcock, Herman Pitcock, are you Herman Pitcock? There was silence and I called again and he said, I'm Herman Pitcock. And then he kind of broke down in a kind of a rage. He immediately started accusing us of wanting to steal his treasure.
1: Not entirely off the base. I mean, not steal, but you were there for the treasure.
2: He had a prior claim to it. You know, while we are professional treasure hunters, we do have a certain set of uh, uh, ethics. I explained to him that we would be happy to assist him in recovering the treasure and getting it back to Georgia. And we had made arrangements with his wife, but he would have none of it. He fired a couple of more times. And we heard the hammer of his rifle... Uh, finally strike on an empty chamber. If, empty chamber. If you've ever heard that, you know what that, that sound is like. I said, wait a minute. And I looked in because I knew, you know, he would have to take a moment to reload. And so I peeked around and I looked in the shaft and about maybe 10 feet or a little bit more inside the shaft, as far as the morning sunlight would penetrate in there, I saw Mr. Pitcock, he was a skeleton of a man, and his his clothes were just simply rags. He looked like a man who had not taken a shower in seven years. And, um, you know, what I could see in the shadows, he looked like a man who needed uh, some serious help. I also saw that he was standing behind several kegs of what clearly was powder used for for blasting in a mine. There were also at least two, maybe more, rolls of dynamite, several sticks of dynamite which I couldn't see anything clearly but I could see enough of it to make out what it was. And uh, I also uh, watched long enough to see him strike a match. Now we have a, a, a man who is clearly upset and possibly deranged with a lighted match standing next to dynamite and powder. And so I shouted, we need to get out of here. And so we started scrabbling up this, roughly it's a 45 degree uh, slope. It, it wasn't easy to do, it was rocky. There was some brush there that we, we pulled ourselves up with. And I would say we were maybe 15 or 20 seconds into doing this when the explosion uh, hit. He had ignited uh, the, the dynamite and the powder, and the explosion just reverberated through that canyon. It seemed like it echoed forever and ever and ever. We were several seconds... Uh, basically in a fetal position, covering our heads. Within just uh, a, a few seconds, the entire canyon filled up with dust. And you couldn't even see the, uh, the, the floor of the canyon from where we were perched on the slope. We probably sat there for about an hour at least, hour, hour and a half, waiting for some of the dust to settle before we set out back to the, uh, back to the campsite. The, uh, where the shaft was, was kind of a concave scar in the slope of the mountain. There was no shaft that was discernible, no shaft left.
1: So what happened to Herman Pitcock and what happened to all the silver?
2: Well, Herman Pitcock uh, blew himself to smithereens, and the uh, silver was blown to smithereens.
1: Jameson and his wounded crew stumbled down the rubble and regrouped again at their campsite.
2: That evening, uh, we talked around the campfire about we asked ourselves the question, how did this guy survive for seven years in this canyon? You can live off the land if you know what you're looking for. There were deer in these, in these mountains. He had a weapon. It's not unreasonable to think that he did some hunting. It's not unreasonable that he traveled back and forth to some town and picked up supplies.
1: What do you think happened with him? Why didn't he go home to his wife? What happened?
2: He had a treasure. He had at his disposal a treasure, stacks of silver ingots, a fortune that for some reason he decided to hoard in that shaft. Wealth, uh, wealth that that you could perhaps measure in the millions, does funny things to people. My theory on, on Mr. Pitcock is that he probably had mental problems to begin with.
1: Is it fair to say um, you hesitate to tell this story?
2: I've always felt uncomfortable about that whole episode. And I thought it was a uh, somewhat sad and and bizarre story. If somebody told me that story, I'm not sure that I would bought into it entirely or I may have wanted to figure out a better way to do things. You
1: second-guess yourself?
2: Yeah, relative to our strategy. I mean, we made up strategy as we went along, and uh, with with a little bit uh, more thought, could, could I have summoned somebody who was a little more skilled at retrieving lost souls like this? Uh, but we were being shot at. And uh, you make decisions on the spot uh, like that that don't necessarily driving back into town and chasing down the local psychologist to come and help a, a crazy guy who's shooting at you.
1: Do you feel guilt?
2: I feel no guilt whatsoever, no. Nope. On the way out of the canyon, uh, I was pondering. Uh, I initiated the discussion relative to what we're going to tell Mrs. Pitcock. And we, we decided that she didn't need to know this. Uh, we decided that we would just say that we investigated the canyon and there was no sign of her husband. So I just I didn't want to be the, the bearer of that kind of news to Miss Pitcock.
1: So did you call her or write her a letter?
2: Her. Yeah, I called her. I had her phone number. Uh, I called her and explained to her, and she said it was just exactly what she expected, that there would be no sign.
1: Was that for your own good or for her own good, or both?
2: Uh, maybe for both of us, but for, for, for her own good, and it was—the the truth is, and I, it sounds a little cowardly, but it was easier on me.
1: If you, dis- if, if you had been Herman Pitcock, and your wife had, had, you know, summoned someone else to go find out what happened, and, and this is what happened to you, would you want your wife to know the truth?
2: If I, were, if I met my end similar to, uh, or at least was in the condition that uh, Herman Pitcock was in, uh, I think I would prefer that uh, my wife and my children uh, did not know that stuff. I've always told my wife that if it looks like my time was coming, what I would really like to do is throw on a backpack and head back into the Sierra Madres or into the Guadalupe Mountains and just simply find a place to lie down.
0: Now it turns out that W.C. did find a few silver ingots on his way down the mountainside, but he says they barely covered his travel costs for the trip. And if you want to find out more about W.C. Jameson, And he's written more books than most of us have even read in a lifetime. Head on over to our website, snapjudgment.org. The original sound design was by Leon Morimoto, and the story was produced by Anna Sussman. Now, when Snap returns, we're going undercover. When the Snappage continues, stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Brass Ring episode. Now, our next story comes from back in the day, from Brooklyn, before it was hit, when the streets of Williamsburg were still rough and the mob ran Red Hook. Sensitive listeners should note that this story does contain some violence directed at a child because the place that Lou Diaz called home as a kid, that place could be even crazier than the streets. Snap Judgment.
3: Diaz was at the wheel of his Cadillac one day, while he and two of the guys he worked with, Wally and Geronimo, patrolled their territory in Harlem. Then suddenly the radio crackled and through the white noise, the voice that Lou heard was not the voice of a disc jockey. It was the sound of nearby police surveillance.
4: I mean, you could hear it distinctly, that there there was law enforcement personnel. It wasn't radio people. And when it came out, I just jumped I said, what the hell? And I says, what's going on here?
3: Lou, Wally, and Geronimo all worked for Nikki Barnes, one of the biggest drug dealers in New York City. If the police had been watching them all day, Lou knew that they might have a big problem.
4: So I drove the car immediately. I drove the car to the first place that I could hide it and it was down a back alley. I came down a back alley with the car. I said, you guys better be straight here. Something's going on here. And I parked the car immediately and I drew my nine millimeter and I turned around and I pointed it at Wally and and Geronimo, who was right next to me. I says, get out of the car. Now. And I says, get up against the car. And now they're going crazy. Louis, what's wrong? Louis, for Christ's sake, what's wrong? He says, we heard it. It's just that happens sometimes. I mean, there's, there's cops in the area. Of course, you know, now Wally's going nuts. He says, Louie, no, please, you gotta understand. I'm not with anybody. I'm with you. I'm with you. So finally, I allowed them to settle me down, put my nine millimeter back, and I patted them down just in case they, you know, I did the whole search, you know, the whole body search to see if they had a, tra- a wire on them. We all got back in the car and we went about a business.
3: But it turns out that the police were on to them. Not long after, everyone Lou worked with was picked up as part of a massive takedown of Nikki Barnes's drug distribution network. Lou was in the police station when he ran across Wally right after the police interrogated him. Wally wanted to make sure Lou knew he'd never give up anything to the man.
4: I'll never forget this. Wally looked up at me and he says, Louie, don't, don't worry, I didn't say a thing. I didn't say a thing. And I looked at Wally. I tell you, I got glassy-eyed, I got to tell you, because sometimes you get close to these people. And Wally was, was not a bad guy. He really wasn't a bad guy. He was a funny, funny, funny character. I says, Wally, I hate to tell you. He says, but I am the man.
3: Lou was an undercover cop. He worked for the NYPD, then for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, and finally for the DEA in New York City during the heyday of cocaine and heroin. Playing a gangster, Lou penetrated networks easily and rose in the ranks quickly. He knew how to play this part so well, because these were the guys he grew up with.
4: You know, I knew how these guys thought, I knew the moves. Growing up in the neighborhood, knowing mob guys in the neighborhood, knowing how they acted, how they reacted, how they looked, how they walked, I had all these things to work with. So, I felt very comfortable in that environment. matter of fact, I felt more comfortable in that environment than I did working with my fellow feds, who I loved and adored, or with the police for that matter. Because to some degree, I'm not a big fan of cops, at least not the bad ones. You know, and there's a lot of cops, even if they use their shield and a gun as an extension of their own prejudice. I hate that with a passion. I hate it. I mean, it's worse than being a crook. At least a crook says he's a crook. He is a crook. A criminal has more respect from me because he stands for what he is. Nothing more, nothing less than a crook.
3: Lou grew up in Red Hook, Brooklyn, back when it was run by the mob and everyone identified with the country their parents immigrated from.
4: These were tough men, you know, working hard for a living, blue-collar workers, truck drivers, you know, a merchant marine, longshoremen, the backbone of America, you know? And uh, my father, he was my king. He was my role model. He was my everything. When we got along well, it was beautiful for me. But he never hugged or kissed me. He never told me I love you. I, again, I don't want to say, <laughs>
3: I'm
4: whimpering here. But my, as much as I love my father, he never hugged or kissed me and everything had to be done like a man. Uh, I mean, even sweeping, you had to sweep like a man. You know, there was a certain way you sweep, you know, a certain way you moved. Certain what does that
3: way. mean? How do you sweep like a man? I'd have
4: to show you. <laughs> you sweep aggressively. He was big on me being a man and me, be, be, me doing the right thing because the neighborhood was pretty tough. I remember my first being at age five over nonsense. I think I woke him up, and he got up and just beat the piss out of me, man. And you know how you get that cry when you, you can't breathe? I'll never forget that. I couldn't catch my breath. I was crying so much. And my mother would jump in his face, and be savage. Stop, you know? And then after he'd stop, he'd, like, he'd go to bed. like He had like this adrenaline surge, and then it just went away, and he just left him blank. That was the first time, I, I got to say, my innocence was taken from me then. And then after that, it was just a series of other beatings for many different things, but it was always over some bull thing, you know. The biggest one was where uh, I was walking down a hallway, and there was a hat on the floor, and I missed it, which it was dark. I just stepped over it unwittingly, and my father looks down at it and he goes, "Mister, you realize what you did?" I said, "No, what I do?" Because I used to answer him back sometimes, in a, in a, not answering back like you know. Very aggressively, but kind of like a a Weisenheim, a little bit, you know? And he hated that. First thing I know, he just gets up and just, boom, hits me with a right hand, knocks me against the wall, and just commences to beat the out of me. And it got so weird, I could hear the thud to my face, the knuckles crashing on my face. And the first time in my life, I felt my brain, my brain actually rock in my head. I said, this ain't normal, you know? But it actually rocked in my head. We'll find out later that's what a fighter goes through when he gets hit good, you know. That's what made me a good fighter because I was used to it. I knew what it was. It was a surprise when I got hit like that. And I was just about to pass out and then my grandmother and mother jumped on him. And then my grandmother fell down. He got worse. And then, I mean, finally it stopped. Finally it stopped. They were able to calm him down. But I was battered and beaten. I never forgot that for the rest of my life. But, you know, I wasn't the only guy getting beat. That's just the way it was in the neighborhood, except that my father happened to be stronger than most of the fathers in the neighborhood. As a result of that, I was one tough son of a bitch. But in a good way. There was nobody going to f*** with me or beat me like my father. Nobody. And nobody ever was going to hit me like that. So I was the number one boy in the neighborhood.
3: That's when Joe Gallo, a local Sicilian mob boss, took notice.
4: And I, I was close to Gallo growing up as a kid because they loved me. They used to grip, grip me in the head like, me a kid, you know, give me noogies, you know. And as a matter of fact, when I came out of the service, they wanted me to turn pro.
3: Why did you decide not
4: to? Because my father said no.
3: <laughs> That's a good enough reason. <laughs> next best the- thing was become
4: a cop. Yeah. I wanted to show my peers, if I was to become a cop, that you didn't have to be a bully. You know, that your job was to protect the people. Your job was to serve the people.
3: So Lou signed up with all his good intentions, but his dad still was skeptical.
4: He had a suspicious feeling about law enforcement in general. Kind of felt they were fascist in nature because of how they treated people and their mindset. So he was concerned about my falling into, the, into that bag with these people.
3: Lou was an obvious pick for going undercover in neighborhoods like the one he grew up in. And right away, he showed that he had a knack for fitting in with a rough crowd.
4: I just had a gift of being able to be in the moment and to seize the moment and react to the moment accordingly and appropriately.
3: Lou spent all his time hustling out on the streets. He started small by selling untaxed cigarettes to sniff out the criminals, and then he'd work his way up to the big guys— Soon, he'd be handing off duffel bags of cocaine in empty parking lots. He developed tricks for how to get a wire past a pat down and made sure everyone always knew he was armed to the hilt. And at the same time, back at the office. His fellow officers respected him for taking big risks with big payoffs. Didn't take long for Lou to move up and start working with the feds. When he wasn't undercover, Lou was a loving father and husband. He was friendly and generous and easy to be around. Undercover, though, Lou wasn't just adaptive, he was fierce. He'd be the first to pull his gun if you looked at him the wrong way. You say, you say that there were times when you could tell that you were in some ways like your father. Oh, sure. I guess, did, did that ever bother you, in the, especially as far as like the, the temper goes?
4: No, because there was a lot of things like my father that I wanted to be like. He made me a warrior and a good warrior, a true warrior, a noble warrior, and I was very proud of that. I adored him. I was my idol. He was my idol. However, the temper, I think that's genetic, and I worked upon that temper of mine. I worked upon it because I had these buttons, these big buttons, you know, push this button and watch Louis dance, push this button and watch Louis fight.
3: When he could control it, when he could channel it, that temper could actually be useful undercover but sometimes it would bleed into his personal life.
4: My brother was an epileptic since birth. And and my kid brother Alfonso, he was a gifted athlete. Kid was strong as a bull. The only thing, is he would get these seizures. I mean, he would get up to 70 attacks a day, this kid. So on this particular day, now that we're older, he's staying home. He's being protected and taken care of by my mother and father. And he had a lot of attacks that day. My brother was coming in, my brother rigo was coming in from London with his family. So I was gonna go and pick him up at the airport. I took Alfonso with me. So I put the you know, seatbelt on him and we took off. He we went on a throughway, and it was coming down. It was raining cats and dogs. I mean, it was, I couldn't even see through the windshield. Okay. And he starts to catch a fit, a epileptic fit. And he starts tearing at the, um, at me. You know, and I'm trying to get him away from me. But he had enough reach to get at the wheel, the, the steering wheel. So he's grabbing at the wheel. And here I am, you know, driving on the freeway, 70, at least 70 miles an hour. So I wanted to get out of that lane and go over. But I couldn't. I had a stick. I couldn't see. And he kept grabbing at the wheel and I kept smacking him back. I had my left hand on the wheel. I reached for my gun. I took it out. And I was about to put it to his head. And I was just visualizing me pulling the trigger and just saying, you know what, it's over. My family don't have to worry about him anymore. They can live their lives and and he's out of his misery. And in that instant, he stopped. He says, Lou, where am I? What's going on? Boy, I'm telling you, I cried like a baby. I cried like a baby. He says, why are you crying, Lou? I said, because I'm just so happy, all the brothers are going to get together now. And that was that.
3: But Lou had an uncanny ability to draw from even the most painful experiences from his life to help him do better police work.
4: I carry around a vial of vitamins, white vitamins, so that I don't have to use drugs with people. Because when they offer me drugs, I say, no, 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 no. I got enough drugs that I use. What are we using that for? What is that? I said, it's phenobabatol, because I'm an epileptic. I get seizures, so I can't be dealing with that.
3: Lou's fake epilepsy turned out to be particularly handy when Lou had to ID a local mobster to start a case file on him. At the time, everyone just knew him as a little man.
2: So
4: little man knew I was an epileptic, because I showed him that and I told him that. I have to ID him, right? So one of the ways I ID'd him was I, I'm driving... I purposely lose control of the car. I go over with a couple of garbage pails, I go toward a, a fence, I stop, a screech. And he's all over the place. God, what's going on? Holy shit, let me drive. God, what's the matter? You got another seizure, take your pill. And I says, no, 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 I'll be okay. Let me just sit down and relax you a little bit. I says, let you drive. I don't even know if you got a license. He's not got a license. Here. And he shows it to me, and I had a photographic memory of that time. So, man, I just go, and I had that license right in my head.
3: By the time the Nikki Barnes case came up, the one where they caught Wally, Lou had been working undercover for almost 20 years. And when they took Nikki down, some people say that the heroin deaths in New York City were cut down to a quarter of what they were before. It was a crowning achievement of Lou's career.
4: It was fulfilling in that I got over getting these bad guys besides taking down these organizations, one of the things for me was the fact that I could get over on these guys, and that was a that was a great reward that I was able to win, if you will, but beyond that it was it was the i guess the attention that I got from my fellow agents, if you will, the, the applause that I received from you know, friends and people who knew me, who knew about the case. Reader's Digest did an interview on me, and it came out in the Reader's Digest.
3: Did your, uh, did your dad read that article?
4: Yes, he did. But I didn't know about it until maybe a year or so later. He was, for some reason, short on giving me my, my proper accolades, if you will. So I sought it elsewhere. And the job gave me an important and significant platform for me to get that recognition.
3: After more than 30 years undercover, Lou finally stepped down. His walls were covered in awards and articles written about his work. But without the job, Lou felt unmoored. Then in 2005, Lou got a call. His father's heart was failing. Now living in California, he flew home to join his brothers at his father's bedside. When he got there, his father lay only half-conscious.
4: And near the end there, I saw my father passing away. I saw my whole world crashing. And I still wasn't sure of how he really felt about me.
3: Lou asked his brothers if he could have a moment alone, and once they were gone, Lou just stood there looking at his father's quiet face. He didn't think he'd ever hear his father's voice again when Lou heard his father murmur something.
4: On his deathbed, my father mentioned two names. He mentioned mine and my mother's. My father never really said, I love you, son. And I... I... I guess I, like anybody else, I I missed hearing that. But when he mentioned my name and his dying moments, I just lost it. And I laid down with him in bed, and I thanked him, and I told him how much I loved him. And not long after that, he passed away. I knew for sure. I knew for sure he loved me. You know? Yeah.
0: Damn. And that's that. Thanks so much to Lou Diaz for sharing that story. Lou's had a long and illustrious career as an undercover cop and federal agent. We just couldn't fit it all in this one story. But if you want to hear more of his tales, check out his book, Dancing with the Devil, Confessions of an Undercover Agent. You'll find a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that piece was composed by Renzel Gorio, and the story was produced by Julia DeWitt. Is that time. I know, I know, but not to fear. A world of Snap awaits your listening pleasure. Full episodes. Get the podcast right now. Snap Judgment. .org, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud. We make it your way. Snap was produced by the finest team ever to hold the brass ring. The Uber producer, Mark Ristich, Pat McIntyre Miller, Anna Sussman, Julia DeWitt, Nancy Lopez, Davey Kim, Renzo Gorio, the Get Fresh crew, Eliza Smith, Anna Adlerstein, Leon Morimoto, and Matt Ducat, shaken and stirred by Jasmine Aguilera. This show is executive, executive produced by our Kickstarter champion, Mr. Don Verhagen. And this is not the news. No ways this is the news. In fact, you could work night and day, day and night, pushing, pulling for your own brass ring, only to realize that there it is in your nose. A brass ring. And what's this? You're a donkey. And even if all that sets in, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is
4: PRX.